So, um, so this, over the last couple years, it's been the second major renovation project that I have led out on uh, over the last decade or so of my life. It's the first renovation project that I've ever led out on in the midst of a global pandemic. I pray to God that it will be the last building renovation project I lead out on. Actually, you know, um, truth be told, these kind of projects, they are a lot of work. They are a lot of blood and sweat and tears, and it's certainly not something that I have done by myself. I've had so much help and support by so many of you over the last couple of years, but, but it's just a lot of work to do a building project, and there are a lot of sleepless nights that I've had, you know, as we've kind of like been in the midst of this project, and... Um, but um, a, a question my, that, that I ask myself as I'm going through something like this is, why am I doing this? And there have been nights, there have been uh, times where I'm, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, why am, I, why am I creating so much of a problem for myself in doing a project like this? You know, when, when I was called to this church four and a half years ago, there was not a requirement that I lead out on a building renovation. Uh, the elders didn't say, look, we're going to bring you here, but we just want to know that you want to do this building project. And so I've asked myself the question, why have I, have I, have I, have I let out on this project, and why have we been doing a project like this? And of course, some of you have asked that question for very good reasons. Uh, some of you have said very reasonably, you've been like, you know, isn't the church the people, not a building? And aren't there so many other places we could be spending our money? Why spend all this money on a building renovation project? And, and I just want to share with you some of my own answers to some of those very, very good and important questions. Questions I've asked myself and questions that, that actually I, I have found myself um, being more convinced now than ever before that this kind of work is important for churches like ours to embrace. Now, of course, uh, we, we must say at the outset that buildings are important, but people who meet in the buildings are more important. Amen? And of course, God cares more about people than he does about buildings, uh, but that does not mean that buildings don't matter. Uh, buildings do matter because God created us as embodied creatures who inhabit physical spaces. You know, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in a particular time and place in history. And when God's mission has worked itself out in this world, it's always in physical places and spaces. And to be missionally effective in those spaces, we do need to attend to things like the buildings we meet in. And of course, uh, buildings matter and spaces matter because, of, of course, we, we, we have been given this building as a sacred trust. You know, there's generations that went before us that invested in the property that we sit on. And I think with great wisdom and foresight, they purchased property right in the heart of the community and they built a church right in the heart of a community. And don't you think it's appropriate for churches to have faithful witnesses to the gospel right in the middle of communities? And so I am so thankful for the generations that went before us. And so this is a sacred trust. It has been passed on to us, and we have to take care of it. And of course, you know, you say, well, um, aren't there other things we can be investing in? Yes, there are other things we should be investing in. 
But you know, uh, there doesn't have to be a dichotomy between you buying a car or a new pair of shoes and you also caring for the needs of the poor. Uh, should you renovate your kitchen or should you care for the poor? Well, maybe at times you should renovate your kitchen and you should also care for the poor, amen? And so we shouldn't have to make a choice. And it's important to point out that a building like this, uh, this is not like us investing in our own kitchen remodel or a new backyard. This is a public space that doesn't belong to any one of us. And so when we invest in this property, we are investing in a public good that is there to serve not just us and our personal needs, but the needs of our neighbors and coworkers and friends and, and people within this community. It's a property we want to hand on to the next generation, and it's worth investing in things that you're going to hand on. Amen? And so that, those are some of the reasons why we invested in this project. And of course, when you open up the Bible, one of the things that I think is interesting is you discover that God also is interested in construction projects. You know, uh, there are several construction projects in the Bible. Think Noah building an ark. Lots of big instruction manual on how that should be constructed and then a description of the construction. And then there was the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple. And then after the temple was destroyed and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews came back from exile and they engaged in a building project, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And God was always in the midst of those building projects. And so God cares very deeply about physical spaces. And so should we, his people. And I want to share with you just a little text that came to mind this week as I was thinking about this building project that we've been engaged in. And what came to mind was a little passage that you had read for us in uh, Exodus chapter 36 that's right in the heart of the section that talks about the building project that God gave his people to do in building the tabernacle. And I want to invite you just to consider three things that were required for that building project that have also been required for this building project that we've been engaged in and also will be required for us in the building that we will continue to do in the lives and hearts of people together as we move forward. And so I want to invite you to consider with me uh, this text by considering three things that uh, were required for this building project, uh, the building of the tabernacle, and also would be required for us in the building of uh, this project, the renovation we've been engaged in. Now, just a word, at this point in time in Israel's history, she was a slave in Egypt and God acted by his mighty hand of power and he set his people free so that he might form a community for himself. And as part of his plan, he desired to dwell right in the midst of his people and so to, uh, to, to, to create a space for him to dwell in, he had his people build this tabernacle. And uh, where we pick up, it gives a description of what was going on with the building. And I want to draw your attention again to these three features, these three aspects that were required. Number one, I want you to note that it required, to build this tabernacle, it required, number one, the diligent work of skilled craftsmen. The tabernacle and its construction involved, number one, it required, number one, the skilled work of uh, the hard work of skilled craftsmen. Listen to how it describes it in chapter 35, verse 30. It says this, 
Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. You were like, whose son was he? Oh, yeah, he was the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God and with skill and with intelligence and with knowledge and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for, for setting and in carving wood for the work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach him and both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach. Ahisamach. That's just a great name if you're looking for names for children. Ahisamach. Like, that's a unique name. I haven't met, and you could just call him a his for short. <laughs> Ohiliab, the son of Ahismach of the tribe of Dan, and he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. And so he notes these two craftsmen, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab. And, you know, there is a world of difference, isn't it? Is there between a skilled craftsman who has taken care and time and discipline to learn their craft, and they have apprenticed themselves to a master, and they know how to do a job and get it done right. There is a world of difference between a craftsman and somebody who just goes and sloppily and lazily gets the job done, right? You know, um, I, I said to my wife a couple days ago, I said, you know, um, I think I want to refinish our, our, our dining room table. And there was a big slab of walnut on our dining room, and I was like, I was imagining myself sanding it down and putting linseed oil or something on it. But I had done that a few months ago, and the result was the massacre that is our current dining room table. <laughs> and so Alicia said gently, shouldn't you ask someone else to do that? <laughs> because she knows the difference between somebody who is a craftsman and somebody who is kind of sloppy and not very good and didn't learn a craft. And what's interesting to me is that in our text, when the tabernacle is built, when God enlists the help of people to build the tabernacle, he enlists the work of skilled craftsmen. And the text highlights this. It speaks specifically about their skill. It says uh, that, that they have skill with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship for work in every skilled craft. You know, it's not like when, when, when God was looking for some people to build the tabernacle, uh, he didn't go out and look for the van with one of those fish on the side, you know, that indicates they're a Christian, you know, construction worker. No, he's like, no, I, I, want, I want somebody who's skilled. Now, they could maybe have a fish on their van and be skilled. But the first demand of you, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are in a craft, is to learn your craft well, right? Dorothy Sayers, in a beautiful essay on work, put it like this. She said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk or disorderly in his leisurely hours and come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. 
Church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement, certainly. But what uses all of that if at the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table lades or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. And so, God enlists the work of these craftsmen. And, um, and, and what's fascinating to me in the text, and, and maybe even more interesting, is that the text says specifically that these craftsmen were filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says. Uh, he says this, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called Bezalel, the son of Uri, by name, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. And do you realize that this is the first reference we have in the Bible of somebody being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? And note well, the person is filled with the Spirit not to preach or to evangelize or to go on a foreign mission. They are filled with the Spirit of God to do good craftsmanship. You know, they are filled with the Holy Spirit to, quote, devise artistic designs, to work with gold and silver and bronze in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood in every skilled work by a designer, embroiderer, or weaver. They were filled with the Spirit of God to do that work. But what does it mean to say that the Spirit filled this person to do this kind of craftsmanship? And commentators have wondered about this, and there's some speculation as to what this all means. And some commentators have made a connection between this text and Genesis 1 and 2. And they've noted that there's parallels in the account of the original creation and this, the creation of the tabernacle. And so, for example, there are parallels in how many speech acts. Uh, the original creation was done in six speech acts, and the, the layout for the tabernacle is given in six words of instruction. And here is another parallel. Both involve the movement of the Spirit of God. In the original creation, the Spirit of God hovered over the, the dark waters to perfect and to give light and to bring beauty and creativity and artistic design from the formless void. And here the Spirit of God is moving over the lives of Bezalel and Aholiab in order for them to work with creativity and skill to bring beauty and creativity. Or we could think about the original uh, human was formed from the dust and then the breath of God, the Spirit of God, was breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. And the first thing that he does is he gives himself to the work of cultivation of taking a wilderness out in the garden and cultivating it into productive plants, into beauty. And here the Spirit moves over Bezalel and Aholiab so that they might engage in this work of cultivation and artistry. And, uh, and, but again, what, what exactly does it mean for the Spirit to be involved in this craft? Well, perhaps it means something like the Spirit wakes us up in some ways to the infinite source of the good and the true and the beautiful so that all of our work is enlivened and we seek in light of that reality to do our work with goodness and truth and beauty. The Japanese Christian artist Makoto Fujimura put it like this. He said, in my experience, when we surrender all to the greatest artist, that artist fills us with the spirit and makes us even more creative and aware of the greater reality all about us. 
may also mean that when the Spirit of God enlivens us, He enables us to do our work as itself an act of gratitude that is an act of worship to God that seeks to benefit our neighbors. You know, in his brilliant uh, masterpiece, A Love Supreme, John, John Coltrane, in the liner notes of that album said this, He says, during the year of 1967, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me into a richer, fuller, and more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. The means and privilege. He comes alive to the Spirit and he asks for the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel like this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. And so the work of the tabernacle required the enlistment of diligent work from skilled craftsmen. And of course, this project itself was no different. You know, we had uh, our share of, on occasion, and only very rarely, some shoddy work done by some occasional sloppy trades. Very rare. Uh, But mostly, what we enlisted and what we found was craftsmen, people who cared deeply and were devoted to their craft, both uh, with Smith and Severson, who was the general contractor that took this project on, as well as uh, uh, my friend Nathaniel Bolin, who leads out a company called Do Good Work. He's a believer, and he does good work. He does fixtures and finishes and has brought this project to completion, and our design work from our designer, and so much good creative work. And then there's been people in this congregation who have taken care and who have been craftsmen. You know, I think of Ed Skelton, who's back here, uh, who, who, who had the vision as we were taking off all of the windows in this 100-year-old property. And you know, 100-year-old wood windows that sit for 100 years in the intense sun of Sierra Madre, well, they come underneath somewhere, Right? And when they were taken off, there was all kinds of damage done. And what I would have done is just kind of papered over it. But Ed said no, and with with craftsmanship. He, along with the help of Sean Phillips and uh, and, uh, with with some other help uh, from, from various members of our congregation, took care to give attention to the details and, and painstakingly filled in properly every gap in those windows. And so we put them back. And then uh, Scott Nelson, who is a master craftsman with walls, uh, he took our original scratch coat of uh, stucco on the walls in the facility, which when I saw it done, I was like, oh, that's not good enough. And uh, our contractor was like, but that's what you paid for. I said, well, isn't there something more you could do? And Scott Nelson, who runs a company called Natural Walls and is a real craftsman, came in. And he was able, uh, again, with the help of others in our congregation, to come in and to smooth out those walls and to make them look, uh, in all of their imperfections, beautiful. And so this project required the work, the diligent work, of skilled craftsmen. But it didn't just require the diligent work of skilled craftsmen. This project required, secondly, the radical generosity of God's people. And look back at the text how this is described. You know, um, 
when uh, this, this um, before the building of the tabernacle, they had a capital campaign. And I can imagine Moses calling together all the children of Israel, and he casts the vision to the people. And he says, we're going to build this beautiful tabernacle. God wants to dwell in our midst. Come together, let's build this thing. And they're like, yeah, where are we going to get the resources for that project? And I can imagine some of them remembering, didn't God send bread from heaven? And maybe he can send down some of those precious resources that we need to build this tabernacle. Maybe he can send it from heaven. But actually, he doesn't ask uh, for the resources to build the tabernacle to come from heaven. Instead, he asks it to come from the enlivened, generous hearts of God's people. And listen to what it says. And Moses said to the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. And, and who, who should give to this contribution? It's interesting, you know, when we began our, our capital campaign, one of our goals was 100% participation. And we said, look, it doesn't matter how much you give, you know. Some of us have a lot of resources. Some of us have very little. But we want to see 100% of our congregation involved in this project. And what's interesting to me is Moses doesn't call for 100% participation You know what he calls for? Uncoerced, generous, and willing contribution and investment. What he's looking for is people who want to give. And I love this because, you know, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And they were set free from slavery in Egypt where their labor was coercively extracted from them as slaves. But now when they come to serve the God of Israel, their labor and their goods are not going to be coercively extracted. Instead, God is going to woo them into this relationship with God's own grace and generosity. It's always the generosity of God that leads to the generosity of God's people. It's when we experience how free God has given to us that we open up our hearts and we freely give to others. And here are the children of Israel. They have been set free and they've been the recipients of God's free mercy. And so now there's a whole truckload of them that open up their hearts and their lives and consummate with that their pocketbooks and they give generously into the work of God. And listen to what it says. And they came. You know, um, Moses, maybe you thought this is going to be kind of a risk because God said, only get the people who are willing to give. And I could just imagine Moses maybe talking to God about this and saying, God, you know, I, I was with you on Sinai. I know how you can shake the mountain, and I know how you can evoke fear with thunder and lightning. Can't we kind of terrify them into this? You know, can't we scare the hell out of them, you know, the money out of them? And uh, with shaking the earth, and God says, no, just go and ask. And, and, and whoever is willing, whoever wants to generously give, give. And they gave. They came, everyone whose heart was stirred in him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all of the service and for the holy garments. And so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. You know, the tithe in the Old Testament came as a command, but this isn't commanded. This is just, look, if you are willing, come and give. This is a free will offering. And all who were of willing heart came and they did just that. 
And uh, the response is just astounding. Listen to the description in uh, chapter 36. Moses called Bezalel and Ahiliab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all of the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. And get this, they still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all of the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task of the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing. And they said to Moses, look, the people bring much more for the work of God than than God has commanded us to do. We're like, yes, Lord, keep bringing it, you know. But Moses said, he, he gave the word, he says, throughout the camp, let man or woman do anything, let them not do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had received was sufficient for all of the work there was to do and more. And you know, I am, I am so grateful to say that the, the contributions that we have received from this generous contra- congregation have been enough to cover the work that God has given us to do here. We didn't have to take out a loan for this work. Uh, in spite of COVID, in spite of all the economic uncertainties, God has provided in this congregation for this project through the generosity of you all. And I just want to say thank you for listening to the voice of God. For those of you who just felt moved to give, and you gave, and you gave generously. You know, I can remember, uh, I've, been, I've been just so encouraged by stories I've heard from people in our congregation about how God has not just worked through their giving, but he's worked in their lives by their giving. Uh, One friend of mine uh, who has some financial means, I remember he said at the beginning of the project, he said, when you talk to us about this, you said, go home and just pray and just ask God, God, what do you want me to do? And he said, before I went home and prayed, he said, uh, my wife and I, we just sat down, we said, let's Let's just get, and they wrote down what to them looked like a very generous five-figure number. And then um, he said, but then he said, you kept inviting us to pray. And so he said, I kept praying. And he said, the Lord kept nudging that number up. And I'm like, is this good? And the Lord kept nudging, and it went from a five-digit number to a six-digit number to uh, even, I mean, it was just a very, very large number. And, and I was just blown away, and he's just, he's like, but the joy and the trust and the freedom that God has cultivated in my life through the gift of giving, it's been good for me. And of course, all of us in this room who have, who have, who have gin, gone in the practice of giving has experienced something of that joy and freedom and trust that's built in our life because we invested generously. And so... This building, this construction of the tabernacle, it took, it took the hard work of skilled craftsmen and, and it took the, the generous investment and contribution of God's people. But thirdly and finally, it required a vision for something bigger than the building. You know, the vision for even ancient Israel was never simply the tabernacle. It was never just the building. And God gave them the vision before the building began. And listen to what he said. This is the very, the very first passage uh, before God gives the instructions of the tabernacle. He says this, let them make me a sanctuary. But he doesn't stop there. 
He doesn't say, let them make me a building. Go out and get a nice building. He says, no, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The important thing for ancient Israel and the important thing for us is never simply the building. It's not the structure. You know, the tabernacle is going to be short-lived in Israel's history. And after the tabernacle, there'll be the temple. And the temple is going to be short-lived, and it will ultimately be destroyed. But, you know, the important thing is not so much the building itself. It is what would happen inside the building. And so after Exodus comes Leviticus, where there's the Levitical priesthood that's established and the sacrificial system that's established and and all of uh, the rituals and rites whereby they're going to facilitate the holy, true, and living God right in their midst. You know, um, this project for us, let me say now and let me forever say, it, it has never been about having a pretty building. Now, granted, you're going to walk around and we have a very pretty building. And it's done well. And we believe in excellence. We believe that God is, is a great uh, artist and he is the infinite source of all artistry and creativity and beauty and goodness. And so we believe the work of our hands ought to reflect that artistry and that goodness and that beauty. And so we believed when we engaged in this project, we were not simply trying to do the cheapest and the fastest But we wanted good value, and we wanted things done well and right that would be lasting and that would reflect something of the beauty and the artistry and the creativity of God. And and I believe we have created that kind of space. But, But let us make no mistake, the space is not the vision. A building is not a vision. The vision is what God is going to do in these spaces. The vision is the intimate conversations about the deepest stuff that matters most in life that are going to occur on the the seating in the gathering space. The vision is the kind of community, the diverse community of old and young and and, and the the multi-ethnic community that we believe and we're praying that God is going to form here that's going to share a cup of coffee over in that gathering space in deep, rich conversations. The vision are the children's lives who are going to be changed down in the, in, in the spaces that we've created for them, fitting spaces that are creative and beautiful for the kind of creative, beautiful instruction in the gospel that those children are going to receive. Those hallways are going to be filled with parents that, that need to know Jesus and be transformed by Jesus. And, 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 and we're going to create spaces of instruction down in Pritchard Hall where, where we can be inspired and encouraged to practice in our life together the love of God in this neighborhood and in the, the larger San Gabriel Valley. And we have a vision for, for beautiful ceremonies that honor God and that bring people together and that minister to people who are hurting uh, when they're going through grief and they, they're, they're coming together for memorial services or their most important moments of celebration like weddings. And we want to create a good space for all of that to happen. And we want venues where, where people can find new freedom through Celebrate Recovery, where they can know comfort through grief share, where they can find, find friendship through community groups. 
And so, so the space is about creating a venue for something that will happen there. You know, John, I remember when I first got here, he had this quote, I, I can't remember who it was from, by famous, who was it? Frank Lloyd Wright, we create our spaces and then our spaces create us. The spaces we gather in matter because they do something among us because we are embodied physical creatures. This is how we were created by God to be. And so what matters is what's going to happen in these spaces. The building is always about something more than the building. And, and let me just close now with this. You know, the work is really just beginning. That work of what God is going to do in these spaces, it is what's going to unfold in the months and in the years ahead. And you and I are the people who are going to participate in this work together. And these same three, three things are going to be necessary for that work to go on. We are going to need, as we move forward, to do good work in these spaces, the diligent work of skilled craftsmen. You know, some of you have unique gifts with music or with voice or uh, maybe with technical ability and sound and you've got artistic design ability or you've got ability in uh, creating uh, hospitable venues and spaces or baking or teaching or listening. And, and we need the engagement of all of the skills of God's people to invest in the work of God. And, you know, you... you this is for you. You know, I, I, I read a story recently of uh, uh, the recording artist Bruce Coburn, who's one of my favorite music artists, and he is uh, just an incredibly brilliant musician. He is something of like the Bob Dylan or the Leonard Cohen of uh, Canada, and he has 35 albums and uh, the equivalent of eight Canadian Grammys, and he toured with the Grateful Dead for a while, which some of you are like, okay. And um, <laughs> but he 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 is a Christian faith, grew up as a Christian, and wandered away from the church for several decades of his life. And in his 70s, his wife started attending a church in San Francisco, and she invited him into church with him. And he kept saying, "No, I don't, I don't. I'm kind of past that." She said, "No, you need to come." And so he came, and he says he was just overwhelmed by the love and the hospitality of this very small little community of 100, 200 people in San Francisco. And it was just this little fledgling congregation with this, uh, you know, kind of paltry uh, music band that was up front trying to lead in worship. And he shared in this interview how they put out a call for musicians to come and join the band. And so he was like, well, I've got musical gifts. I'll go join the band. And so Bruce Coburn joins the band, and they have no idea who this guy is. He's in his 70s. They probably think, is this old guy going to contribute to the band? You know, and I just imagine him sitting down and just tearing it up on the guitar because he's this brilliant guitar player, and they're like, whoa, you know, who is this guy, you know? And it was only later, he didn't tell them, but it was only later they discovered who he was. But how beautiful is that? Not just putting his gifts into play out in the culture to the glory of God, he did and should do that, but bringing those same gifts to bear in the community of faith. We need you to do the same. But it not only requires the diligent work of skilled craftsmen, but to move forward, we're going to it will require the radical generosity of God's people. Financial, yes. Continue to pray and ask God how he wants you to invest in this, uh, in this ministry. But 
the generous investment of your time and my time in this place. Listen, I want to share something with you. Uh, Last week, we had to cancel our kids' crew. And we canceled our kids' crew because we were down about six volunteers because of COVID and some travel. And we just didn't have enough people to care for and to minister to our children. And as we move forward in the next couple months, our desire is to start a children's ministry for our second hour of worship. And here's the thing, listen. Listen, it would be tragic if we created these beautiful spaces to minister to kids and we had parents bringing their kids to learn about Jesus, but we didn't have people from this congregation responding to the call of God to serve those children. You know, the very first ministry I ever got involved in was kids' ministry. I was 17 years old, and I volunteered working with four to six-year-olds, and I did that for a couple years. It was an incredible experience in my life. And then I did the same thing when I went away to Bible college and I was just 18, 19 years old. The first group of of people that I pastored was a group in fourth and fifth graders. It was the most difficult people I ever pastored (laughs) until I came to Sierra Madre. I'm just kidding. But listen, I I just want to ask you, we need about a dozen people to sign up to serve in children's ministry and we're going to invite you to, you know, go on this tour with us and land downstairs for our volunteer fair. Sign up for children's ministry. I'm serious. Sign up for, you're you're like, I need to pray about it. No, you don't. Like, God has been speaking to you. You just haven't been listening. I'm just a doubling up on the voice of God. But we need you. Get involved. We, we need at least a dozen of you. We need people who can serve regularly, and we need people who can serve at, a, at, a, at a, you know, filling in slots when, when you know, people are, are missing. And, and we need people to serve in a wide variety of other areas in our church. Natalie rattled off the number of there's over 100 volunteer positions that we need filled in this church. I mean, some of those positions are filled, but oftentimes those 100 slots are filled by like the same people so that you have 20% of the body of Christ doing 80% of the work. Friends, this should not be. If this is your church family, get up and play a role in your church family. Amen. Serve. Get in the kitchen. Do some dishes. You know, don't just let people serve you. You know, we got to serve together. You say, well, I don't have time. Well, you're too busy. You know, how much time do you spend on Netflix in the week, you know? Like, let's make time and so that we can radically invest our lives into the work of God. But then thirdly and finally, we need a vision for something bigger than ourselves. And listen, friends, we have been given the biggest vision possible. Do you realize that the creator of all things has acted astoundingly in this world in the death and resurrection of Jesus to defeat the power of sin and death and darkness and to bring about new creation in this world? Ultimately, where we are headed is the renovation, the restoration of nothing short of all things around the power of Jesus. The love of God will flood and renew all things. And even now, right now, the Spirit of God is at work in this world through people like you and I to be witnesses and agents of this new creation, of this new life that has come to birth in this world through Jesus Christ. 
So let's join together and let's be this community that locks arms and says, let's go together and participate in this work of new creation. Let's be ministers. Let's be agents of the kingdom of God. There is no higher calling in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now, and again, we come today with gratitude in our heart. Because, God, you have been so faithful and good to us. And we ask now, God, that in light of your generosity to us, that you would continue to help us open up our own hearts and lives so that we could be agents of your generosity into this world. God, may this be a community that is known for radical, generous investment of our time, of our resources, of our lives into your work. God, inspire us afresh today to do that. And I pray, God, that even as we go downstairs, I pray that practically that we would step up, that we'd sign up, and that we would lock arms and move forward together in this work you've given us to do. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.